The Grazadio School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Dennis Tito is the chairman and CEO of Wilshire Associates, a Santa Monica-based global leader in investment technology consulting and management. As one of the founders of Wilshire Associates in 1972, Dennis was among the first to apply new computing technologies to the investment industry. He had previously applied such computing technologies at Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where he worked to help plot the trajectories for the Mariner spacecraft missions to Mars. So you can see where his interest in space came from early on. He is credited with helping to develop the field of quantitative investment analysis that uses mathematical tools to analyze market risk. Under his direction, Wilshire developed the Wilshire 5000 Index, now known as the Dow Jones Wilshire 5000. They developed the first asset liability models for pension funds, uh, the first U.S. equity-style metrics works, and the list goes on and on of the many firsts that have come out of Wilshire. They now have 350 employees serving the investment needs of more than 600 institutional and high net worth clients in 20 countries around the world. He has a bachelor's degree from New York University College in Engineering, uh, in astro astronautics and aeronautics and a master's in engineering science from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and he completed his requirements for a PhD in finance from the Anderson School at UCLA and also uh, as you well know in 2001 he became the first paying traveler in space when he joined a Russian crew above, uh, on the Soyuz spacecraft and spent time on the International Space Station where he spent what he calls some of the most memorable uh, times in his life. So it is with great pleasure that I introduce to you Mr. Dennis Tito. Thank you, uh, Dr. Livingstone, for such a great introduction. Uh, I'd like to give you a, a perspective on well, how did I actually end up in space. How does one uh, get there other than applying to the astronaut corps? It turned out that a lot of people shared the desire that I had to go to space. In fact, over the last 45 years, over 600,000 individuals applied to NASA to fly in space. So if you're looking for a business to get into, uh, space tourism is probably one of the great future. You just have to lower the price. <laughs> anyway, just to you know, go back to where I got started, uh, it, it, all, it all began in uh, 1957 when I was 17 years old. And uh, all of a sudden, there were headlines that the Soviet Union just launched an artificial a satellite around the Earth called Sputnik. Sputnik. And that was a great shock to the world because at that time, the Soviet Union was our arch rival. And all of a sudden, they had technology that was now apparently advanced over ours. So I look back at that as sort of a technological 9-11. And being young, you naturally rally to the cause. And the cause was we need more scientists and engineers. So it was pretty obvious what to do, sign up for engineering school, which I did the following year. 
and studied aerospace engineering, went on and ended up getting a master's degree. And then, of course, uh, the weather was a little bit too cold back east, so I decided to come to California uh, for a lot of reasons and uh, study or start uh, working at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where I ended up accepting the lowest uh, paid job of about five different authors, but that's where I wanted to work, and that was the best decision I ever made, taking the lowest paid job. Uh, later on, I decided to you know, up my uh, desires. At least then, uh, they were modest. But anyway, uh, I worked at JPL for five years and had some very interesting experiences, but then I found that uh, I really wanted to do more with my life, and I started uh, studying the stock market on the side. And I remember reading a lot of different books that I bought at bookstores about how do you make a fortune in the stock market, just like you see these books about how to make money in real estate. You probably still find books about uh, how, how you can get rich uh, easily. Anyway, I read these books and I found that it really didn't make any sense. There was no real uh, substance behind them. It was all anecdotal. And I said, I really want to know more about the science. And that's what led me to uh, UCLA to study finance. I had read a number of articles that were published by the University of Chicago Business School that were actually quite far advanced, given that they were published in the mid-60s. And it was at that time that, that the idea of quantitative finance was developing in academia. And I just was fascinated by that. I had a mathematical background, and well, here's another uh, challenge. Uh, rather than applying it to space, which uh, I had done uh, for five years successfully, let's apply it to uh, finance. Anyway, after I uh, was well into the PhD program, I was offered a consulting job which lured me away. And that consulting job really was the forerunner of Wilshire Associates. And what it enabled me to do was go from being an uh, aerospace engineer to a financial engineer. And it's not as big of a career change as you might think. And if you're a student you know, studying uh, you know, one type of science, it's very easy to move over to another type of science. So, uh, it's not the same thing as going from a bodybuilder to an actor, or from an actor to a governor. <laughs> it's a lot easier than that. But anyway, uh, even though I uh, you know, loved space, I also wanted to make some more money. It just wasn't enough. I think I was making 15000 a year after five years in the space program. So uh, I started with my own business, and uh, for the last 35 years, that's what I've been doing, with a little time out for a sabbatical. Anyway, uh, I, during this time, I did not let go of space, and I kept following it uh, religiously, and I always wanted somehow to have the opportunity 
to orbit the Earth. And I thought, well, back in the late 60s, you know, there was 2001 Space Odyssey. That was going to be, make it easy. There were going to be orbital flights. Pan Am was going to provide it. It was going to happen before I got too old. Anyway, the decades went by, and all of a sudden I began to realize that I was running out of time. I did have the opportunity to visit the Soviet Union uh, in 1991 and happened to have the opportunity to meet with officials from their space program. And I did get into discussions with them about the possibility of flying and at least got an idea of what they might charge, <laughs> which was a lot of money and even more money then in, in my mind. But anyway, before I could get very far, the Soviet Union collapsed and uh, that opportunity went away. Although I kept you know, looking over my shoulder and seeing what was available, finally in around uh, late 99, early 2000, it became apparent to me that the Soviet, well now the Russians, uh, just had gone through a financial crisis really were in need of money. And I approached them again. And with the help of some people that I knew, was able to contract for a flight. So in uh, April of 2000, I signed an initial contract. I started training in June of 2000. And uh, with some breaks in between, I, tra I trained for a total of eight months in Russia. And that was not easy. The conditions were quite primitive. It was very much Soviet Union style uh, military base at uh, Star City. And uh, you know, they were very strict in terms of wanting you to show up every day. Uh, you couldn't miss class like maybe you can at some universities. <laughs> but uh, uh, it was a lot different there. And uh, all of a sudden, I found myself uh, back in college and uh, you know, having to take tests and knowing that I had to prove myself. Well, anyway, after eight months, to make a, a long story short, I found myself ready to be launched on a spacecraft to outer space. Was I trained enough? We'll see. Anyway, I'll start out two days before the launch with the rollout of the rocket. This rocket is the same design as the original rocket that launched Sputnik in 1957. It's a huge rocket. Not the same rocket, the same design. And it was a pretty powerful rocket because it was actually designed to, to launch nuclear warheads at the United States. And uh, at that time, the Soviets did not know how to miniaturize the nuclear weapons. So they had very large weapons. So they had to build a very large rocket. That's why our, our rockets were much smaller. But anyway, they eventually decided not to launch nuclear weapons uh, at us, and likewise us at them. And they started using this rocket for human spaceflight. Now what I'd like to do is uh, show you what happened two days later when I was sitting on top of this rocket. And I think this will speak for itself. 
nothing can explain the thrill of sitting on top of a rocket like that and after eight minutes and 50 seconds finding yourself in orbit around the Earth. And this slide will give you kind of a feeling for what I was seeing. I was videotaping my position in the capsule. That's my knee in the lower right. You can see the, the high-technology capsule uh, by the buttons. And uh, you'll notice the most advanced technology in the spacecraft is the post-it notes. <laughs> but these were actually there, uh, rather than what you might find on the shuttle. But anyway, this is my seat. And uh, this is what I saw when we first entered orbit. That's what the Earth looks like. It's just unbelievable to be sitting on top of a rocket on a launch pad, and then less than nine minutes later, looking out your window and, and seeing the Earth like this. This is another shot that I took uh, looking out the window. And here we're flying over Egypt toward Israel. And if you look in the upper right-hand corner of the screen as we get closer, you'll actually see difference in shading, which represents the border between Israel and the Sinai. Of course, the, Israel is much more cultivated. But you can actually uh, see that line uh, in the upper right-hand corner. We also see the Red Sea which uh, I'm zeroing in on now. And, and the Red Sea, of course, uh, goes into the Gulf of Suez and the Suez Canal. And what this will illustrate, if nothing else, is you can see man-made objects from space. And you can see in the center of the screen uh, the two forks of the Suez Canal. And, of course, Mediterranean. It took two days of circling the Earth about 32 times, since we uh, take about 90 minutes to go around. And we finally caught up with the International Space Station. But you couldn't see it outside the porthole. It was actually viewable on this old-fashioned video screen, analog screen. And um, I, I took that with my video camera. We are now approaching at uh, 18,000 miles an hour, the space station, closing in on it by a, a few inches per second. And you can see that uh, we're just heading automatically. This is all done automatically, although this, the uh, crew has an override opportunity uh, to actually dock with the station. And you'll, you'll see in a minute a little movement that will indicate when we actually uh, came into contact with the station just at that moment. So we had docked at 18,000 miles an hour. It was a fantastic experience to be able to do that and to see where the technology has come. After docking, I uh, decided to take a little view outside the window and look at the International Space Station. You can see what it looks like from the outside. It's not very streamlined. It doesn't have to be, even though it's going that fast, because it's a, there's a vacuum outside. 
and you can see the antennas and the various components. That's probably that's what it would look like if you were doing a spacewalk. Well, I didn't do a spacewalk. It would have been fun, but uh, it was not part of the program. This is a video that I took inside the functional cargo block. On the lower right is a sleeping bag that I used. And uh, you zip yourself in that sleeping bag, and you have the most comfortable sleep you can ever think of or dream of. Uh, notice the sleeping bag on the left. Uh, one of the crew members decided to uh, put it vertical. And then on the upper right, another crew member decided to camp out in a different location. So this is a little bit different than having to put your sleeping bags in line in a tent. But that was a little camp out spot in this cargo module. I understand that today it's much more cluttered with uh, junk and boxes than it was back uh, six years ago when I flew. I'm now with my video cam moving into another compartment in the space station. And we move through these cargo, through these hatches that can be closed off in, in the case of an emergency. As we approach the service module where most of the activity took place, you can see the other crew members are busy. They didn't even uh, let me bother them. One of the uh, complaints NASA had was that uh, I would be disturbing everybody as a tourist on the station. You can see that they didn't even pay attention to me. But it didn't matter because I didn't care. I had uh, plenty of fun while they were busy. In fact, that was one of the advantages that I had of being a tourist, that I didn't have any work to do. And I was probably the first person to ever fly in space that didn't have this choreographed activity. So I joke that probably one of the biggest uh, claims I have to fame is that I had more fun in space than anyone, if there was a record for that. And speaking of fun, what I want to do is show you what it is like to be 60 years old and being a kid in a sandbox, or the equivalent of it. And uh, you can just see one guy having a lot of fun. And none of this was disorienting. None of this uh, made me sick. It didn't matter which way it was up, which way it was down. A uh, little sickness the first day when I was on the Soyuz, but after uh, the seven days that I spent, six, seven days on the station, uh, not bothered at all. It's amazing the way you can adapt to space. I could have stayed out there easily for uh, three months. In fact, if I ever go again, which I doubt I will, I want to have at least three months in space. It just wasn't enough time in uh, eight days in space. But you can see how you float and how much fun that is. <laughs> I always like to look at that picture. <laughs> now, with the rest of my time, besides floating, was looking out the window. And uh, this is typically what you would see, but every time you looked out the window, you'd see something different. By the way, in the upper right is the uh, solar panel, uh, not a, 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 a UFO. <laughs> Although some of the cosmonauts really thought they saw UFOs, not the ones on my flight. Anyway, you see different textures as you look at the Earth. I spent 
about uh, 30 hours total listening to opera as I looked out at space. So I really did enjoy the whole experience. And uh, I play these videos all, all the time at home. I have about three hours of videos actually looking out at space. And uh, it just fascinates me as much today as it did uh, six years ago. I'll show you some pictures that I took, still pictures that I took from space. Uh, I'm not even sure where a lot of these locations are. But the one thing you can see is from 240 miles, the Earth looks a lot different than it does from an air, airliner. Uh, this is actually uh, a lake in Montana. And you can see how far below the clouds are, how much closer to the ground they are than, than we are from the uh, station. This is a desert area. You can, you can see the, uh, uh, the different texture of the desert as it looks from that distance. That's another, another shot of another desert. This is the west coast of Africa, and you can see these clouds line up with the direction of the wind. And they're actually thermals that cause these little puffs. It almost looks like a cornfield. This is the breakup of an ice flow in northeastern Canada. It was May, so it was springtime, early May. And another shot at that ice flow. It's probably all melted by now, uh, even though it's uh, March, uh, given global warming. But we'll see. Anyway, this is... Uh, uh, actually right near Las Vegas, uh, Lake Powell, and uh, another shot of that, of that area. Uh, I believe Las Vegas is in the uh, left-hand corner. This is the Red Sea during a sandstorm. And you can see the interesting texture on each side of the Red Sea. But you can see how dense the sand is and uh, how it really uh, almost blocks out. Uh, the sea. This is uh, the west coast of Baja, and what is on the left is a storm front approaching. That's all ocean on the left, and you can see how sharply defined that uh, uh, weather front is. And this is uh, another shot of Baja a couple orbits later, I believe after that uh, front had broken up. And again, this is a shot of uh, western China, I'm not sure where. Uh, and also in western China is the remnants of a dried up lake bed. And it turns out, it looks like an ear, but this is the area where the Chinese first did their nuclear test, I believe in the uh, first nuclear test in 1967. And I've offered this to the CIA, but they, they weren't interested in that. <laughs> Uh, another uh, pretty picture that uh, I selected. And now these pictures show the edge of the earth, and you get a different idea of the textures that you can see and how the earth looks in the different colors. Uh, you know, every time you look out, it's, it's different. These are shadows that are 200 miles long. You feel why it sometimes gets dark early in the evening, or appears to get dark uh, when there's certain kind of uh, clouds. 
And this, of course, is a familiar uh, uh, tropical storm or tropical depression. It's not a hurricane because it's not tight enough, but uh, I managed to uh, pick that up. And finally, it all comes to an end with the landing of the capsule. And you can see um, one happy guy being born again. <laughs> they didn't use forceps. <laughs> but I was glad to be alive. I had the best trip of my life. And uh, you can see that uh, after a pretty harrowing ride uh, through the atmosphere, that uh, I still had plenty of energy left. Uh, amazing, you know, given what we all had to go through to uh, land back on Earth. Well, that's it. So, uh, You know, as I looked at that, it reminded me as a child, I think, how many of you as a child or even as an adult maybe have dreamed of flying in space or being an astronaut? I mean, it's just really wonderful then to have you here and to, to hear that story. Uh, one of the things that made me think about listening to you um, share that was just uh, that was a dream you'd had from when you were young and one that you didn't fulfill until much later in life. But do you have any advice that comes from that experience in terms of, what we should think about in terms of the dreams that we have or, or or the things that we really aspire to do that are appropriate to this group, but even to those of us that have children that we could go home and share with our families? Well, I have advice not only for young people, but uh, older people as well. And that is that in my life, I spent a tremendous amount of time thinking ahead of time what I really wanted to do with my life. And uh, I would sit around uh, you know, out in my backyard for hours and hours and hours. In fact, uh, my young son uh, was asked about you know, being on a team. And his mom had asked him, what, what team do you want to be on? He said, well, I want to be on the resting team like my dad. <laughs> because I would sit out there and just look out at, uh, at the ocean and think about what I want to do and I can look at my life and I can you know identify about six major ideas that I focused on in my life that I kept a, a very long-term focus on but those were the things I wanted to do with my life and I ended up accomplishing most of them but it requires a lot of focus and and now I'm 66 years old and I have a 10-year goal that I've been very detailed with as far as what I want to accomplish with my company. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'll probably, you know, if I achieve that goal, I'll probably keep on making 10-year goals. I do have an aunt that's 105 years old, so who knows? You've got plenty of time to work <laughs> on it then, don't you? Well, kind of related to that last comment, your 10-year plan uh, for Wilshire, uh, how did that evolve out of the experience that you had on uh, in spaceflight? How did that experience in spaceflight really influence what you chose to, to think about doing when you got back? 
Well, up until my goal of going to space, I did not have any other goals. That was such a dramatic goal. I uh, started thinking about it really seriously in the early 90s and you know, focused more and more on it and less on my business. But once I achieved that goal, people would ask me when I got back from space and I was interviewed a lot, well, what is your goal now? And the only thing I could answer was to find another goal. <laughs> and it actually took me several years of thinking, sitting on the resting team, and, and deciding you know, what did I really want to do over the next decade. And you know, I couldn't, didn't really want to make a 40-year plan. Uh, it's not appropriate at my age. But uh, I ended up coming up with a very specific set of goals for my company. Well, it's inspirational for all of us to see that as you have had several transitions in your career and in your life. Um, and I do want to talk a little bit more about what you're doing at Wilshire Associates and, and sort of get your insights into what's going on in the economy. I, I, as much fun as we're having with your space flight, I wouldn't be doing my job as a business school dean if we didn't take advantage of your wisdom and expertise in the investment world as well. Talk a little bit about what you see going on with the U.S. economy and how you're responding to that at Wilshire. Well, as far as ups and downs in the economy, I look back 40 years 45 years since I've been an adult and you know that's all I remember is ups and downs and after a while you become immune to that so what the stock market went down today 250 points or 280 points so what what else is new uh, the stock market will always fluctuate don't let it distract you from you know your your long-term goals but I do see you know something that everyone sees, and I'll just repeat it, uh, even though it's obvious. You know, one is uh, really a globalization, and uh, you know the world is becoming uh, global, and there's certain specialization that you know we uh, in the United States uh, tend to focus on, and then other developing countries, you know, more. Uh, uh, labor-oriented activities, we're becoming more management and idea-oriented. So that's one idea. The other thing that uh, I've been thinking a lot of and reading a lot of is really how creativity uh, works and how one creates wealth through Creativity. There are some people that are very, very smart and very well educated, and and there it, it's unlimited as to what they can contribute into say today's society versus say when I started my business 35 years ago. When I started my business and I had to develop a business plan, I had to spend hours and hours and hours drawing diagrams, laying tape for bar charts. Uh, using an ink pen, uh, you know, my drafting skills, typing up and pasting captions, things you do on PowerPoint, you know, with a few clicks. And this would take hours and hours. I remember working late at night just doing grunt work. Well, now with all these tools, if you're an architect, you can work out drawings 
thousand times faster than you could 30 years ago when you had people draw it for you, you had to manage those people. So what we have today with software and computers are helpers. And these helpers are very, very inexpensive to use. So we can lever our talent by several orders of magnitude over what we could have, the same person uh, 35 years ago. And that's why you will see a greater disparity in wealth because the, the value added by the people that get educated, that, that have you know, particular skills, uh, creative skills, is, is so much greater. And for people that don't have those skills or don't have education, you don't need education to work at a McDonald's because all you have to do is press on the button with the picture, the picture of a Big Mac. You don't even have to remember how much it, it, it costs. It just automatically goes in there. So you're going to have a greater disparity of wealth between uh, you know, the creative people and, and the, the less creative people, which means you know, there's going to have to be some social support system. And we're seeing that develop. And we shouldn't you know, think of it negatively that for those of us that are fortunate to uh, have creative skills and make a lot of money, so, so what if we get taxed higher than, than we you know, would have at some other period when we had to do all that hard work? Now we just you know, use our creativity. So that's the general trend that I see. Well, you talked a little bit, you mentioned emerging economies, and, and one of the things we've seen is a lot of growth in some of the emerging economies. How do you see that playing out in the long run, and what impact is that going to have on markets worldwide as we see growth in those uh, emerging and developing nations? Well, I think we're just going to see an expansion of globalization. Uh, there are going to be fewer poor countries over time, and you know the same thing will apply. You will have... Uh, as you have now, uh, people becoming educated in the United States, uh, coming to America and going back to their, their countries of origin, and uh, increasing the standard of living. So I think this globalization will, will spread and, and there will be fewer poor people in the world and it will be a better world. Well, clearly one of the things businesses have been a lot of time dealing with in the United States recently is Sarbanes-Oxley. And I would like to hear your perspective on that, particularly as it relates to uh, any influences you think it is having on markets and market value for firms and their ability to compete successfully in this new international market. Well, my firm is a privately held firm, so Sarbanes-Oxley doesn't apply. But... Uh, as far as it, the way it has impacted you know, publicly traded corporations, it's been a, a real hardship. And I think it's discouraged uh, you know, some corporations from uh, going IPO in, in the U.S. and instead going offshore. And you know, we hear about you know, the negative aspects. And like any regulation, it, it can be burdensome. But the other side of the coin is that Sarbanes-Oxley does give investors more confidence that the financial results that they're seeing is accurate and that the uh, management of the corporation 
has to stand by those numbers, and they can't fake those numbers without risking going to jail. So I would say on balance, it's, it's positive. And I think that over time, all of us need to have better numbers and give more accurate projections, not only to our public shareholders, but even uh, myself, to our employees, to our employee shareholders. So I think that we all should be heading in the direction of Sarbanes-Oxley, whether or not there was a rule. We should have really a good handle on the numbers. The numbers should be accurate. Our counting should be accurate. And then through that, from what you're saying, that builds uh, confidence in the public that they can trust the companies and which will uh, spur investment in those companies. Absolutely, because you know the U.S. has a, a real strong legal system, and and this is you know very important as far as uh, commercial businesses are concerned, uh, protecting inter intellectual property rights. Uh, you know, what about investing money in Russia? Uh, you know, who's going to end up with it? Uh, you know, you're dealing with a almost a lawless society and not an ability to uh, conduct you know some kind of a uh, legal action. In fact, if you do, you might end up. <laughs> what do you think the impact of having nations that have a very different rule of law or no rule of law compared to the United States has on the global market that we're dealing in? How is that going to play out, D.C., in the long run in terms of the stability and success of those global markets? Well, I think to the extent that, that uh, a... Uh, uh, you know, a particular uh, nation does not have that legal system, uh, they're going to be hurt by it. And uh, I think eventually, uh, you know, com countries will come around to understand that if they want to, uh, you know, improve the economic conditions, that they have to do a number of things. And uh, eventually they will catch on. I'm, a, I'm an optimist. And I could tell that he and I visited earlier and we did a podcast that will be on our website and he is very optimistic about what's happening in the world and in the markets. And so that's good for all of us to hear given the role that you're in. I have lots of other questions that I could ask, but I know there are many people in the audience that would love to um, uh, ask you some questions as well. So I think we'll open this up to audience questions. And there are microphones, so if you would please grab a microphone as you respond. And I saw the very first hand over there, so we'll let him go first. Mr. Tito, good evening. Um, my question deals with, if you can think back towards 1970 to 1972 era, when you were starting your company, you were hoping probably to exploit some kind of a market inefficiency or some kind of a condition by which to profit. Did you kind of fumble about that? Did you have an exact idea of how you're going to do that? How did you come about to the formation of Bullshare and how did you get that off of the ground? Thank you. Well, I had the opportunity to, to work for a, a Wall Street firm for about a year before I started my own firm. And I, I understood, uh, myself and my colleagues understood pretty well what the marketplace needed. We had uh, a good feeling for risk, and we knew that portfolio managers did not understand risk. And the market had just gone through you know, a couple of downturns. And you know, the uh, uh, 
high beta mutual funds, of course, they didn't use the word beta then, uh, the uh, uh, high growth mutual funds suffered the most. And you know, we just said, look, they have to understand that uh, you know, they need to measure the, their market exposure. And they also need to understand something about diversification because they, their results are really poor. So we had that particular focus that we went in to the marketplace with. And it was very focused. We had, it's just like you have an idea, and it's that specific idea that, that you promote. And we started promoting that idea, uh, and you know, we gradually started having success. But it took a long time. I mean, there was uh, a lot of work required to make that happen. Did I have the vision that I would have a company the size of Wilshire? No way. I mean, it was one day at a time, and uh, you know, just hoping that you could get through the knothole, which is the period where your cash uh, account is at its minimum before your cash flow starts to turn things around. So it's a bootstrap operation. Over the last 15, 20 years, the U.S. markets, particularly institutional investors, have become fixated with quarterly results, and corporations have responded to that by managing their quarterly results short-term over long-term in the U.S. And I think proof of that is the GM's fall versus uh, Toyota's rise, where they're really much more long-term. Do you see that changing or evolving uh, with the analysts and just what's going on in the market now? Well, I think there's some moves by the SEC to uh, get away from the, uh, the quarterly earnings uh, focus, or whatever they call it. And, uh, you know, I think as a... Uh, manager you constantly have to think out long term and uh, you know as long as you don't have to uh, you know be totally accurate on you know the the short term uh, you, you know you can focus on the long term and I think that's how you create value I'm going to pass that down thank you uh, we uh, met a few years ago when our well, maybe more than a few when our children were both at Brentwood School, so good to see you again. Um, I'm interested in your comment uh, in, re in response to a question from the Dean about creativity. Um, a lot of folks think that creativity can be taught. I I'm one of those. Um, and yet it does not appear to be high on the list. I'm not, not talking necessarily about teaching art, although I think there is definitely a place for art and music and the schools are challenged at this point, but just simply teaching creativity as a value and encouraging it and, and, and bringing it out of, uh, of, of more people than we do today. What are your thoughts on how we can go about that? I agree with you. And I think what you just said at the end there, bring it out. We all have certain degrees of creativity, intelligence. Um, I, I joke about my training in Russia that uh, you know, they try to teach me Russia. Russian and my creativity there was uh, uh, near zero, so uh, I'm glad I didn't go into that. You know, being being a linguist, but we have to help people find out where their passion is, where their creativity is, because it, it the passion and creativity go together. If you if you love something so much, you think about it all the time, and you reach deep into your brain. 
you know, that's what creativity is all about. And I think to get people to focus on that, because that's how you're going to succeed, by having that focus and spending a lot of time working on it. Not doing grunt work, but thinking. Thank you. Why did you choose uh, the number 5,000 index? What's so special about that number? And um, any comments about your um, that index that you created? In 1974, I became aware that uh, dividends and capitalization became av available on all publicly traded stocks in machine-readable form. So that's when I got the idea, well, now it's time to develop a, a total market index, because now we have the information. I mean, with the S&P 500, it was hard enough for S&P to put those numbers together. But when you looked at all the publicly traded stocks, it was something like 5,000 securities. And you couldn't put together that index until it was available in uh, machine-readable form. It turned out it was about 5,000. But of course, it varied depending on whether you know companies went bankrupt or new, when I, new companies went IPO. So it never was exactly 5,000. I think one time it actually ended up going up to about 7,000. But we like the name 5,000, but it does not have anything to do with the number of stocks other than the rough order of magnitude. Obviously, we've learned a lot about your successes, but are there any pivotal failures along your career uh, that you can point to that um, had a dramatic effect on the way you focused going through in the future? I've only had uh, one job in the last 35 years, and that's Wilshire. And you know, the company has profited every year since 1973 and, and has a fairly secular rise in, in uh, earnings. And so I would say, well, there were no failures that are obvious, uh, you know, no bankruptcies, nothing really major that went wrong. But if I want to be honest with myself, I could say, well, I failed to make Wilshire a billion-dollar company. It's not a billion-dollar company. So I could look at that as a failure. And some of my colleagues, you know, look at me and say, yeah, why didn't you do it like so-and-so? Or why weren't you, you know, as successful as Bill Gates? Well, depending on how you want to look at it, uh, you can define failure any, any way, you know, compared to your objectives. I did not have an objective of being the you know the richest person in the country, so it's hard to say I failed at that. But sometimes I ask myself, why didn't I do better uh, up to this point? And that was one of the motivating factors uh, behind the, the new 10-year plan. So in a way, you could say that a certain feeling of failure about what I could have done is now driving me to a new goal. So failures are good, and you can define them any way you want. And I think it's hard to, it's good to be hard on yourself. And if you can't find a failure, look for one, and then set a new goal.
Mr. Tito, it's very refreshing to hear your optimism on the future of the U.S. economy, uh, particularly after spending this past weekend with my grandfather, who insists that the U.S. dollar is going down and telling all of his grandchildren to invest in gold. Um, can you comment on what your outlook is on the U.S. dollar? Well, it just always seems to be going down. <laughs> and uh, I really want to buy a French catamaran as my next boat because they have great catamaran builders in France. And I guess my outlook is that the longer I wait, the more it's going to cost me because the dollar is going to keep going down. But that's about it. Um, what I wanted to ask you is that the United States in its very short history has gone from an agricultural-based economy to an industrial-based economy to a tech revolution. What do you see if there's any one dominating next coming up for us? Well, we have a long way to go as far as uh, fully capitalizing on the tech revolution. And, you know, we're talking about uh, three revolutions that, you know, occurred over the last 3,000 years. You know, the agricultural phase, the industrial phase, which lasted several hundred years, and now we're just at the beginning of the technological phase. So, you know, the only thing I could think beyond that, uh, which is going to be way beyond my lifetime, is uh, once we expand uh, you know, beyond Earth, start to colonize the planets. And that's going to open up all sorts of opportunities and doors. But uh, that's not going to happen for, you know, probably, uh, it could be a thousand years before we start actually colonizing the planets. For those of us who know the manned flight space numbers and the unmanned flight space numbers of what it costs, how did you manage to negotiate such a low price to go into space? I think that's a real accomplishment there because it's very expensive. Well, it's a uh, it's, it, it's very interesting uh, question about you know how do you deal with the Russians uh, and you know how to time things. Uh, you know, I knew that they had a financial crisis. I knew that they paid their aerospace workers about a hundred dollars a month, and. The reason they paid him $100 a month was because under the uh, communist system, they provided the housing, they, they subsidized the food, and all that $100 a month was, was like an allowance that you give your child. So here you have, a well, maybe some kids do get $100 a month. I used to get 25 cents a week. <laughs> but... The, the costs, at least as they, the accounting costs of, of the way that system was set up was quite low. So they were willing to uh, you know, come up with you know, a very decent price given you know, what, what they were providing. But I understood how, at that time, how the, that Soviet system worked from an economic standpoint. And I just went in and I said, this is what I'm willing to pay. And I'm not going to pay any more, so take it or leave it. 
What is your point of view relative to the lack of SEC oversight for hedge fund managers relative to independent investment managers who have the burden of SEC regulation? See, I don't have much of an opinion. Um, I do, I am concerned that, you know, that the, the whole hedge fund uh, idea could, could blow up and hurt a lot of people. And uh, the only problem is there are so many hedge funds, you know, what is it going to take to try to regulate, you know, for the SEC to try to uh, regulate those hedge funds? And the reason they haven't regulated them in the past is because supposedly the investors are accredited investors. So I think uh, it's, it's, you know, the regulation by the SEC should be designed to prevent people from getting hurt. And, uh, you know, if people are you know, worth a million dollars or more, uh, then uh, you could say, well, they should deserve as much protection as, as the next person. But it also costs a lot of money. So I could go either way with it. I, I really can't express a preference. I think regulation, you know, is a good thing. I think the fact that we have SEC regulation in our business for the same reason that we talked about Sarbanes-Oxley, it does give investors more comfort. And, uh, you know, it might be a good thing, but but it, it, it is burdensome on small firms. Dennis, it was fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing your story about space, for sharing your wisdom about uh, what's happening with the economy. It's just been a wonderful evening, and we appreciate so much your time and your willingness to come join us this evening. So let's give Dennis a yeah,